Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 11.3, the third episode in our series on Everglades and Biscayne National Parks in South Florida. In this episode, Brian talks with park ranger Denise Radizak about how Biscayne National Park narrowly avoided development and tips for visitors to enjoy the park on land, on water, or in the water. Biscayne National Park is 95% water, and you may snorkel there at the third largest barrier reef on Earth. Before we get to the conversation, we would like to ask for your help to grow our audience by telling your friends, subscribing, and leaving a review. Also, we love creating each episode, but it takes significant time and effort. Please consider supporting our work through Patreon, which provides a way for listeners to support the show. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on Biscayne National Park. Okay, welcome back. I'm here with Denise Ratizak, Public Affairs and Interpretive Park Ranger at Biscayne National Park. Very excited on several fronts to have you here, Denise. One, that you're back at work after the shutdown. Two, we are here in the polar vortex uh, here on the east end of Long Island, so I am jealous of you right now. What is the temperature in Biscayne right now? Um, it has been rather cold here. You guys uh, <laughs> missed some really good cold weather. It was in the probably the low 50s not very many days ago. Oh, boo-hoo. And, and <laughs> it's, well, I'm going to tell you right now, because I haven't really been outside much today because I'm catching up after the shutdown. It is currently seven, 79 degrees here. I don't know. Perfect day for being out on the water. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great right now uh, here in the polar vortex. But, uh, well, look, welcome back. Thank you. And welcome back to work, too. We're, we're glad that you're there. And we were there, and sorry we missed you during the shutdown. But that means we're just going to have a much more um, inclusive conversation right now because there were so many things that we didn't get a chance to do that we were very curious about. So hopefully you can uh, you can help with that on that end. So, well, yes. first off, I think the biggest thing I was stunned by, and I want to start here, is a little bit of the more recent history of Biscayne National Park because I knew it was close to, obviously, close to Miami, but really until you're there and you see how, you see the scope of the park, not just the land, but what's underwater. And then literally you can yeah. see downtown Miami, uh, you know, kind of looming yeah. over the horizon. It is that close to me as a New Yorker. It is as though um, Staten Island and not only just Staten Island, but the islands in between were all parks and what's underwater is a park. And that That's just, right. it just seems like logically, sadly, it should have been developed and should have been South Beach South or something along those lines. Can you tell a little bit of the story about how it how it became a national park and, and why you're, we're so lucky to have it? Well, during the 1950s, as there is now, but there was a lot of money in this area. People really fell in love with Florida and they wanted to come here. And then they saw how amazing it was and they decided, oh, that might be good to have something maybe all year long or maybe opportunities for development. And with Henry Flagler building 
building the railroad also contributed to that. So this became a really popular place for a lot of reasons. And then people were envisioning along with those railroads were hotels and roads and other things like a seaport. And fortunately, there were some people, a small vocal group of people who said, no, we don't want that. They recognized that this place was special. And this ragtag group of people got together and in a very short nutshell, they helped create this park and they stopped that development. And hadn't it been for them, this park wouldn't exist. So we hold a great deal of gratitude for that. It's amazing. Again, the 1950s and the 1960s, not the 1850s and the 1860s. Exactly. Miami was then, as it is now, a major city uh, in America. And the fact that this is so close and is wasn't developed, I mean, it's, it's stunning. And uh, I know obvious to you, but I had to go there and see how close it actually is to <laughs> downtown Miami. So what a treat and what a special treasure to have that close. It is. It is. And I'll tell you, I hearing you talk about this, so when I come to work every day, I actually live in those big buildings in the city of Miami. I face the water. I live on Biscayne Bay in Miami, and I drive every day an hour south to be at the opposite end of Biscayne Bay. So not only am I fortunate enough to be a park ranger in one of the most amazing parks in the world, I both live live on one end and work on the other. So I love that fact. I feel so fortunate and so blessed to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's February and it's 79 degrees there. That's the other thing as well. So that that's also <laughs> exactly. sounds great. Well, listen, can we talk a little bit about that? Daniel and I have talked about what our trip to Biscayne and our perspective, but I think hearing it from actually a, you know a ranger who who lives it and breathes it, can you talk about what makes up the park? You know the well, just the the entire constituent members of what the park is, because it's a little bit different than just a landmass with a border around it. This seems to be pretty special. Exactly, Biscayne is very special. It's we are a mostly marine national park, which is pretty unusual. People don't I don't even know if they know that they exist. They do exist in other places, but very small quantities. So Biscayne is special for that reason. We are 173,000 acres, and that's approximately 270 square miles, and 95% of that is water. And if it's a good rainy day and a full moon, you might have 96% water. So along with that, so the special things that comprise this park are four ecosystems that work interchangeably and in tandem with each other. And those are the mangrove shoreline, the shallow waters of Biscayne Bay, the islands that uh, are found in this park, which are actually the northernmost Florida Keys. So people think they go to Key Largo and they think, well, this is amazing. This is a great key, but it's not the first key. The keys in this park are the very northernmost keys. And the last thing that we protect, which is very, very important, uh, the northernmost portion of the third longest coral reef in the world. So four really important things that we protect in this park, and uh, a big job that is. Can you describe in how those various ecosystems interact? And then again, not to keep harping on this, but they all interact, like the coral reef, Denise, you just mentioned, Within a stone's yes. throw of Miami and I'm sure shipping lanes, how does this park, which is very close to a major urban center, how does it fit in and still be able to right. keep its character and preserve what it needs to preserve? Well, to give you a better perspective, our borders, if you look at a map, our borders come within a quarter of a mile of the city of Miami. 
Key Biscayne is part of the, the city of Miami, and we are one quarter mile away. So those borders which fall in the water, so that really brings it home. But how those ecosystems work together, so we have the mangrove shoreline. Mangroves, not very beautiful trees. They're a group of plants that are named for how they interact with salt water, not how they're not scientifically connected. So they are uh, plants that tolerate salt water. Uh, those not very beautiful trees have these very extensive and complicated root systems, which act as these amazing places for juvenile fish and other creatures to grow up, uh, mostly because of the protection that the roots offer, but also because of the, the leaves. They fall off the trees, uh, get collected in the water, they start to decompose, and they make this really luscious soup that these little juvenile sea creatures love. So these juvenile fish are thriving and growing in the mangroves, and they start making their way through the bay, the bay waters, the shallow waters, which are on average six to eight feet in depth. So it's really not very deep at all. So those fish make their way past the islands again, some more mangroves, some more protection, and out to the reef. So all of those things are connected geographically, but also how they work in, in conjunction with each other. So the bay brings in the water. It's a shallow estuary, which is a mixture of salt and fresh water. So it's not completely salty. I think to tie a bow on it, it sounds as though that if any one of those elements were removed, so you had the park, but not the mangrove side of things on the mainland, then, then this ecosystem exactly. breaks down. Or if you had the if you had the mainland part of it, but uh, you know the shipping lanes were obviously rolling over those coral reefs, it, it wouldn't matter because the 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 fish wouldn't have a place. It sounds it was a there was some thought given to preserving the entire ecosystem, much like a a Yellowstone, but just some of this here is marine and mainland. It is. It's a very intricate intertwining of, of little of, of ecosystems. So I'll give you an example. So if you have been to Miami and Miami Beach, you think you or you think of or you see photos of a big, wide, beautiful beaches, absolutely beautiful. But if you think about what you saw at Biscayne, the mangrove shoreline, these kind of unusual trees that are growing along the shoreline, well, actually, mangroves used to comprise the shoreline of Miami and Miami Beach. People came in and they did developing and they took all of those mangroves out. So now, for example, when we have uh, a lot of rain or high tides, Miami Beach floods. And yeah. it's because we've removed that. So you have a tangible example of what happens when we remove things from the ecosystem and remove them quite dramatically. And, and you can see what happens. So people had the foresight to when they wanted to create this part, they were paying attention a lot more than we pay attention now. And they knew that those things work together and without one, the other wouldn't exist. Again, amazing that that foresight, uh, they were able to stop that development yeah. and they had the foresight just 50 years ago. It's, it's amazing. So let's talk about adding to the ecosystem uh, and, and not maybe a happy story, but we saw a large uh, lizard when we were there, which looked kind of cool. And then we were told, no, no, that's actually an invasive, that's a pet someone let loose. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the invasive uh, species, an iguana? Can you talk a little bit about the invasive uh, species? The iguanas. Like the iguanas or, or plant stuff. So iguanas we see here quite um, a lot, and they are, generally speaking, pets that people they went to the pet store and found this cute little guy in a cage probably and thought this would be a great pet, and they didn't realize when you – get them home. And a few years later, they get extremely big and they require a lot of care. So people in their endeavor to not be cruel, 
I think uh, they, they take it upon themselves to let them go and thinking, I'm just going to give it a good home outside, which is never the thing to do because now they've bred prolifically. And because they don't belong here, they've affected the ecosystem. And how iguanas do that is they, they eat small creatures, they eat birds' eggs, native species that are affected by that and that may be damaged by that. One of the most amazing things I have noticed about iguanas, so I come in early in the morning, usually about 8 o'clock I arrive at the park, and I leave around 5.30. And those iguanas know when people are leaving the park. They feel safe. They know 5.30, quarter to 6, the park is covered in them. Um, and they, they're very perceptive about that. And I, and I always wonder what what's prompted the them to react that way, but they're very, very adaptable. Um, one of the things that uh, I think is really interesting about iguanas is that when it gets to a certain temperature here in South Florida, which, as you know, it's pretty warm most of the year, but when we get a bit of a cold snap, the iguanas go into a bit of a suspended animation. So they might be up in a tree and the temperature drops, they go into suspended animation and they tend to fall out of the trees. And it's a little bit frightening for people sometimes if they're not expecting it. So just the next time you come, be aware that there might be, uh, if it gets cold, to be on the lookout for iguanas coming out of the trees. It may be raining iguanas. Well, you know, you said when they come out... When they come out at five thirty, again we have little we have kids, so it reminds me of Toy Story, where uh, you know the humans are out of the room, and then they all come to life and start partying and hanging out. So, but still, absolutely a, a grave issue. So uh, something to to keep an eye out for, and it's a great yes. lesson as well in terms of pets and releasing them into the wild where they don't belong. Yes, and it's the same thing with lionfish. We have a tremendous problem with lionfish here in the park. Um, Hurricane uh, Irma took. Some of the some of the edge off of that last year, but it's a it's a big problem that we have. And actually, our scientists uh, devote quite a chunk of their time to studying lionfish mm-hmm. and um, raising awareness of lionfish. And they're a beautiful, beautiful fish that was part of the aquarium trade. And again, like the iguanas, people got them as pets, put them into their aquarium with their other beautiful fish, and when they woke up the next morning. There was not anything left in that aquarium but a lionfish. Right. Because lionfish will eat everything, and they thought, oh, my goodness, again, what have I done? And they released them into the wild. Right. And uh, now they're decimating the reef. So let's actually – let's talk a little bit about – that's a nice segue into actually activities because, as you know, one can eat lionfish. And I'm sure you don't have a problem with fishermen in your park pulling out lionfish for sport or to eat um, can we talk a little bit about fishing? Uh, not, not just for lionfish, but uh, what are the rules around fishing? Does one need a permit? And uh, what can we expect to fish when we're at Biscayne? Well, fishing is definitely allowed here, and it's definitely encouraged, but we do have some rules that we would like people to follow. So around the visitor center area, there's places that are restricted for fishing simply because we have people in, you know, walking around, exploring the park, and you need to be careful, obviously. You've got hooks and things like that. So we do have some restrictions on that. Um, as far as general fishing goes, uh, Florida State fishing rules apply here in the park. So the state rules supersede everything, so you're required to have a license um, for fishing. And even if you're a resident over a certain age, there's no fee attached, but you still need the paper license. And the reason for that is that FWC, the Florida Fish 
Fishing Commission, they like to monitor who's out there fishing and they keep statistics so they can, again, and they have scientists who analyze the impacts of different things. I love fishing. Yeah. We do a lot of fishing with school groups come here. And in fact, next week we have some kids coming, kids who have never been out on a boat, who never have been fishing. So we encourage that and we show them how to do that, but we show how to do it responsibly. And that's the key. That sounds like a great field, better field trips than I had as a kid. <laughs> so a couple things with fishing. Where does one fish a Biscayne? You say there are some restrictions off the pier on the mainland side or off the walk. Generally, I'm sure there are some fishing spots. So does one need a boat? And then secondly, going back to the lionfish, what are we pulling out of there? What are we? What is a fisherman allowed to keep? Are there limits? Are there? I'll ask one last question. Uh, this could be an ignorant one. Are there bonefish up in Biscayne? Because that's a certainly a sporting fish. Or, or do they make it up in your park as well? Well, let's back up a little bit and remember what I said about the mangrove shoreline. So the play, the, around the visitor center, we have a lot of mangrove shoreline. Uh, we have a, a footbridge that you guys mentioned in your podcast and you saw people fishing from there. But if you remember what I said, this is a place for juvenile fish to kind of thrive. So in all honesty, people who fish here from the visitor center area do not catch anything really big. So it might be small snapper or small, sometimes parrotfish get caught up, maybe grouper, but they're all very small. And there are extensive regulations, which it would take me days and hours, and I don't even know all the answers to this, extensive regulations and seasons about different types of right. fish, because some are, have been fished to crisis levels. So you can find different apps that you can look at or go to the myfwc.com if you're really interested in knowing about catch limits and those sorts of things. They're, they're regulated just for conservation purposes, just because we want everybody to be able to go out and enjoy fishing, but you have to do it with some knowledge to do it properly. Right. And look, at uh, tying it up with the, the trips you're taking, Snapper is a great kid fish kind of easy to pull yeah. out. And also, again, I, I hope I'm not overstepping the rules here, but snapper are actually pretty yummy. So they're good to eat as well. So if, you can, if you're allowed Absolutely. to take some, that's, uh, that's, that's some good eating as well. That's what I grew up fishing as a kid here on Long Island. And uh, it's an easy one to be, uh, for a beginner fisherman to uh, literally sink their hooks into. So that's, um, yeah. that's great to know. So uh, part of this, I want to explore some of the other recreation because as, as you heard, we just scratched the surface of Biscayne. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about undersea diving. Well, diving and swimming. We swam off of Boca Chica, the the little uh, beach there. Where the else? beautiful little beach there. That is one of my favorite beaches. And but actually, that's one of the few natural sandy beaches that you'll find anywhere in South Florida. So yeah, it was it was natural. And again, that was the one where we felt like we were in this. If you look with your back to the beach. Uh, well, even if you were looking back at the beach, fairly undeveloped, you know, just the the picnic mm -hmm. benches and the lighthouse. Uh, and then once you're back to the beach, it uh, looked like just wild Florida, unless you looked over and saw downtown Miami looming over the horizon, which was otherworldly. So aside from that beach, are there any other places where you can put in to swim from land or Otherwise, you have to be uh, have a boat and kind of jump in off a boat. Well, you can swim from the the area near the visitor center. Now, where we suggest, because people ask all the time, oh, really? it gets hot in the summer. People come here picnicking. You can get in the water here. 
Um, but we recommend you do it from the canoe launch area, which is just off the parking lot. Okay. And that you kind of you head sort of to the left because it's more protected area. Some days of sometimes there's people out there. There might be a lot of kayaks or canoes uh, or windsurfing. So you've got to be very aware of your surroundings. However, the problem with swimming near here is that the bottom is really squishy and kind of gross. So <laughs> yeah. it's not ideal for swimming, and it's really quite shallow in a lot of places right and the reason i can say that as a ranger we do a lot of training out there in canoes and kayaks and part of the training is they dump us out of those those canoes and kayaks and you you might get dumped out and you realize you're standing in two feet of really squishy muddy water right so uh, that's personal experience so i would prefer to swim off of someplace like boca Chita, that beautiful little beach also if you go out camping to Elliott Key, there is also a, uh, a swimming area there. It's a little protected kind of inlet. Oh. So three kind of places you can go, but they're obviously challenging because you have to get out to those islands. So let's uh, let's toggle over to camping. So Elliott Key, Boca Chita, is that the only uh, places where one can camp? Those are the two campsites that we have in the park. So Boca Chita is it's more of a, more of an open area it's because it belonged to a man with a lot of money he t- he landscaped most of it and by that i mean he pulled out a lot of the native vegetation so you have a big grassy area kind of peppered with palm trees and various buildings which makes for great places to camp but as you might know on the weekends it can be very very hectic there although camping there is first come first serve the problem with boca chita is there are only toilets there. The bathroom facilities only include toilets. There's no running water whatsoever. So it proves a bit challenging. Still very beautiful, as you know from being there. The other campsite is on Elliott Key, and Elliott Key is more natural in that sense. It's less visited by um, some of the more party-oriented people, Um, and that campground has uh, running water, cold showers, flush toilets, um, and we actually have an educational center there that we use when we have school groups because we take school groups out camping, and Elliott Key is where we take them when we do that. Fair to say that Elliott Key on a Saturday night, is, on a Saturday weekend camping, is going to be a little bit more mellow than Boca Chita? <laughs> definitely, definitely. So Boca Chita, so we, we do have people like to go to Boca Chita, and um, have a little bit of a party on the weekends. And, and sometimes that's a little frustrating. But you know what? When we look back at the history, when Mark Honeywell took over, that's kind of what he used that island for. He had lots of great parties with his Elephant Rosie, as you guys know about, yeah. and the cannon and all of that. So it really hasn't swayed much from its kind of roots. So it's hard to kind of look at that and think it's necessarily a bad thing, but again, it's about responsibility and taking personal responsibility and thinking about other people who might be enjoying the park uh, facilities along with you. So, One concern we had about uh, Biscayne, and again, we loved it, but one concern was if you didn't have access to a boat or if you didn't have the budget for the concessionaire to take you out when we were lucky enough to, to you know, be able to buy those tickets for the concessionaire boat ride to Boca Chita. How does one approach, how do you approach that when you have someone on a budget, limited means that wants to enjoy the park? What would you suggest to them? 
That is a challenge that we face at the moment because there is no easy answer to that because boating in general, whether it's your own boat or a boat that you might uh, take a trip on, it's an expensive proposition. And anybody who mistakenly goes and purchases a boat without doing their homework will tell you that. It's, it's expensive. We don't currently offer it's been talked about but has not been implemented is a possible shuttle service from from the mainland out to the islands for camping but right now that's just something that's being talked about so you really you really uh have to do your homework and you're going to have to hire somebody to take you out there or you're going to have to go make some friends with a boat right unfortunately right it it's a it's a challenge i know it's not your uh, it's not your hill to climb but certainly as park advocates, it's something that Danielle and I talked about that, you know, this is a uh, yeah. this is a need here where and I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know what the rules versus the concessionaire who are very nice to us. And and of course, I you know, every, everyone needs to make a living. But boy, yeah. you know, it, there's not a ranger run boat service or a ranger run uh, boat trip where someone who pays the park fee but comes in and says, all right, for my 20 bucks. Uh, can I see everything exactly. that Biscayne has to offer? Right. I think that's a that's a hard thing to square off. Right. And I think what, what how things can change is by people expressing interest, like you guys have seen a need, you've mentioned it, it's other people making their wishes known. So, you know, talk to the concessioners, talk to the park rangers, send in an email to um, the park webpage, the, the powers, the management at the park. And if they know about it, maybe there's something they can do. But if we don't know, then we can't fix it. So it's important that if you have something you'd like to see to let us know. We're constantly looking at new things and new ways to improve visitor services and absolutely want to people to come and enjoy this park. And that's all of the park. So, But without people's input, uh, we don't know. Hey, I think uh, if going back to our, what we said at the top, if those concerned citizens in the 50s and 60s were able to save the entirety of Biscayne National Park, then I think this generation can at least figure out some boat service. So I think that's a that's not right? a big hill to climb. I think that's a doable uh, task. So that's a challenge accepted. And I think that's something that we have to undertake. <laughs> Excellent. Just going back how to enjoy it, do you have some hikes that you can recommend? I know we did the walk and we talked about it, the walk along the water on the mainland side. But our, if we had a boat and we can get out to some of the keys, some of the islands, are there some special hikes out there that are available or not really? It's not really a hiking park. Down the middle of Elliott Key, there's a massive hiking trail, six to seven miles long, almost runs the full length of the key. Now, because of hurricane damage from last year, we're still recovering and trying to make that passable. But that is an awesome hiking trail, just not in the middle of summer <laughs> because yeah. it's full of mosquitoes. Right. But if you go prepared, but that's absolutely beautiful and you're in the middle of this, this key and it's, you're totally in touch with nature. Having said that, hiking, I'm not much of a hiker, I have to admit. I'll tell you my secret, well, it's not really secret. It's a little bit challenging to get to and you will need to take a concessioner simply because in order to get there, you're going to need them to take you in, and you're going to need a paddleboard to get there mm -hmm. uh, once, once you get there. And that is Jones Lagoon. Ooh. And Jones Lagoon is this as it's a lagoon, as, I've, uh, as the name suggests. And it's a shallow lagoon that you really can only paddle in. And I've, I'm not a, I can't stand up paddleboard because I'm not that coordinated. But I went in, and I sat on the paddleboard, and we paddled through there. And it was the most amazing, peaceful, gorgeous place that I have seen. And I'm so lucky it's in my park. So next time you guys come back, 
I'd recommend doing that. So they take you out, they drop you just outside, and you have to paddle in. And what's great about that is because of that, not many people bother to go in there because it does take some effort. Yeah. That's a great tip, Denise. Yeah. I'm going to say, when you come back, invite me to go along. I will be there. Well, let's do it up, <laughs> which, which also leads to another activity. And we, you mentioned this briefly where you can swim on the mainland side. There are canoes and kayaks and also stand-up paddleboards available for rent. Correct. We have all of those things, and they're for people of all abilities. So if you are a beginner, and I'm kind of a beginner, I'm getting better, but you can just launch out near the parking lot, as I said, and you, again, head to the left, and you can do a gentle paddle along the mangrove shoreline so that you feel secure and you're not out in open water. And it's actually really cool to do that because that's where you're going to see the chances of seeing birds and different kinds of fish, as I mentioned, in the mangrove roots. And so if you're a beginner, it's good. And if you want to do more challenging things, not this year, I haven't seen it, but people have actually paddled from here out to Elliott Key, which is like a nine-mile I don't recommend it unless you're in super good shape. So you have what I'm getting at is that you have something for people of all abilities. The other thing that people do here quite a lot, um, and it's not really that well known, is windsurfing is a big sport here. They don't offer windsurfing rentals, but it's great to come out here and see people who come and are amazing windsurfers because of the bay, because of the winds. Um, So if you're inclined to do that and you have your own equipment, you're absolutely welcome to. And you're right. It's a fun spectator sport. It's fun to watch when you're sitting on the beach. Absolutely. And you see people who know what they're doing. Yeah. The last couple of activities is underwater, snorkeling and diving. I assume they're available. Where would one go? Anything special about the dive spots that you can recommend? How how myriad and diverse are they? And, And what can you just tell us about that? Well, diving is absolutely fabulous here. And one of the really cool things that you'll find here at Biscayne National Park, so along with snorkeling, which is one of my favorite things to do because snorkeling is actually the laziest sport (laughs) <laughs> the idea is just to lay on your belly, right? That's just that's the goal. Right. Um, we have something called the Maritime Heritage Trail, and that is a trail that's of shipwrecks that is underwater. And if you're a diver, you can go and explore that. Wow, that sounds cool. So for more about that, you can look on the website, but it's a, a six wrecks spanning nearly a century and all kinds of different ships. And perhaps like when you go to the Grand Canyon, you see these metal plaques that talk about the history and the, the science. Well, we have those kinds of plaques that are next to these wrecks, and you can read about them also underwater. So it gives you the history and information about those, which I think is pretty cool. Also reminds me, we've been to Virgin Islands National Park, and there is an underwater snorkel trail where you can... Again, the, the the reef is a little bit beat up, but you can at least follow this trail, mm. which is also kind of neat just to think about underwater trails marking system, which also dovetails nicely with uh, one of the recommendations. One of the things we've learned in traveling around to the parks is uh, if you can to get off the beaten path and take another trail that maybe is not the famous, you know, Angel's Landing Trail in Zion, you know, take another one of the trails, you can kind of get away from the hubbub. I sense that's what you're suggesting as well. It may take some effort, but whether it's going to Jones Lagoon or if you can dive a bit or if you can get out to snorkel, you can kind of get away from the hubbub of, you know, the visitor center, which isn't that busy, but you can kind of get away from it Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And planning is key. So just like you guys with this podcast are giving people good information, I recommend planning because sometimes things, you know, not as straightforward as they seem. So you get to a park, people come here and go, I didn't realize you were so much water. And they're a little bit 
frustrated, I think, because they can't get out on it. So planning is key. So for example, looking ahead to boat tours and just looking at what the weather might be like at that time of the year or what, and if it's summertime, think about mosquitoes and those sorts of things will make for a much better experience if you plan ahead. Right. Um, and go prepared. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, here it is. We've, we've already joked about how nice the weather is down there right now, how cold it is up here. What about the off season? You know, what, what is, if we were down there in the summertime, is it just miserable or are there some hidden gems where you can avoid the mosquitoes, but also have a great experience? How, how do, would you attack some of the maybe off seasons at Biscayne? How I look at it is this way. This time of the year is beautiful and cool. But if you're going to do things like snorkeling and diving, it's a little more challenging because the weather shifts, the winds come from a different direction, and sometimes it disturbs the water and it creates visibility issues. In the summer, you don't have that so much. So you have really hot weather and it feels really great to jump in the water and go snorkeling. The waters are much clearer. So you trade off maybe the heat a little bit on the boat tour for the cold on a boat tour, but visibility is better. So it's all kind of relative. There are good and bad parts to each season. Mosquitoes are here year round. So when people go out camping, I've been out camping in March when it was cool weather in the 50s with a group of kids and the mosquitoes were still prevalent. Right. So don't let the idea fool you. So that's what I mean about preparation. Do your homework and always go prepared. In Florida, bugs are always going to be an issue. I got attacked this morning by noceums that I did and I was not prepared this morning. So I'm speaking from experience. Right. It still is Florida. It's <laughs> so yeah, there's good and bad like everything else. So like with you guys, you're probably, I don't know how many feet of snow you have, but the best part of that probably is you can go sledding or skiing, you know, yeah. how, and all, how you approach it. No, right? it's the worst of all worlds. We have no snow and it is super cold. So it's, it's just, oh. bro- yeah, that's, that's, uh, it's a, it's, that gives you an excuse to drink hot chocolate then. That's right. That, that, always look at the positive side. Well, uh, look, Denise, just a few more questions for, you, you know, we're here. And usually we want to keep our podcasts evergreen, so even if you tune in in six months, it's still relevant information. But we're here just a week out from the end of the government shutdown, so just we would be remiss if we didn't ask, were there any any negative impact, aside from, and then we feel terrible for all the park professionals missing paychecks and that stress, but to the physical plant, to the physical aspect of Biscayne National Park, was there, was there any negative impacts? Was there... Any vandalism or garbage or anything, any stress put on the park that we should know about that, uh, that has, uh, that's had you uh, worried over this last week since you've been back at work? I came back to work on Saturday, and the park looked amazing. And that was really down to the people at the Biscayne National Park Institute, our concessioners, our partners. And they were very, very vigilant about keeping the trash at bay and the bathrooms clean. And so... That part of it, that that was fine uh, because that's what I could see. Monday, we had a meeting with uh, all of the employees and our superintendent, and I'm happy to say that there were no major issues. Right. Rubbish was collected regularly, and so we were very lucky. We were very lucky because we know of other things that have happened in other places that are heartbreaking. So I was... I held my breath as I drove in, but I was so pleasantly surprised when I got here. And then everything was confirmed in that meeting that we are good to go. So 
we feel very, very fortunate. The concessionaires were seemingly on top of it and uh, were very diligent about keeping things running. I think they told us that had this gone yeah. on for longer, that they would have felt the stress and things would have started cracking around the edges. But I think it seemed like uh, they were able to mitigate things until you all were back. And also, we should mention, because uh, we saw this, that uh, some of your colleagues were working without pay. So we saw law enforcement rangers there making sure things were safe and everyone was having a safe and fun time working without pay, which was also frustrating on, on our end to see someone working and not getting compensated for it. But they were there as well. So, uh, again, just it's a long yeah. way of saying we're just so happy you guys are back and everything is. And we're happy to be here. Yeah. We are so excited that we are back up and running. So, Denise, you know, my last question, we ask this of all our guests is uh, and we don't we don't pre- prepare this one because we want a kind of spontaneous answer. You know, working at the Skane National Park, has there been a moment whether you're working there or, you know, you talked a little bit about Jones Lagoon where you've had a moment where you, you know, your breath was taken away where you said, wow, I, you know, this is a special place that I get to enjoy some of it. You had a transcendent moment of enjoying the beauty of the park. Do you have a moment that comes to mind where it just kind of hits you like a ton of bricks, whether it was working there or some of your off hours? Um, I'll tell you one. I, I get, I have experiences every day. I love this job so much and I love sharing it with people. I started this career, is a, it's a second career for me. I started it later in life and I've only been a ranger for almost five years. And about two years ago, in my very green stages of being here um, and being a bit of a city girl, um, I, I spent 15 years living in Europe and 10 of those in London. So you can get that gives you a picture of I'm used to a city with a lot of things. And a lot of rain. Um, and a lot of rain. Yeah, good exactly. trade. Good trade. So one of one of my first assignments as a um, this this person who had moved back from living in a big city was to go out camping for two nights on Elliott Key with a group of um, fourth graders, and I had not been in a tent for a very 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 long time, and I was terrified and I was stressed and I wasn't sure how this was going to go. And the minute we started setting up camp with everyone, I got busy. I kind of forgot about it. And then when everything was said and done with all the kids and I got to put up my little tent, my own personal tent, and I chose my spot near the water. And I finally, we had dinner and I finally crawled into that tent running from the mosquitoes, mind you. (laughs) This is the other factor. I laid in that tent, which I put about 10 feet from the water. And I remember falling asleep and having one of the best night's sleep that I ever had listening to sound the sound of those waves yeah and the next morning waking up with all those kids and we went out and we did sunrise art and and that that wasn't a particular moment it was kind of that those two days of being there but those kind of two things connected the the sleeping next to the water and how beautiful that was and waking up the next day and sharing this amazing sunrise with all these kids uh who were just uh, you know, in awe of everything as well as I. Yeah, it sounds like the, uh, to me, it sounds like the park allowed you to go from a moment of stress to a, a moment of peace pretty quickly. <laughs> and uh, that's absolutely. A, and by the way, also the tent experience in camping is also one of my favorite things. I'm with you, Denise. That is also nice when you can kind of bunk down for the night and the sounds of the, right. whether it's the waves or the forest or whatever, it's, that's also a really and- nice thing. Yes. And for what I'm trying to say is that I think everybody, me being a little bit of a, a lot of a city girl, very urban and to go into that. And if, let me say, if I can do it, anybody can. And I highly recommend it because it will bring you back to yourself. And that's one of the things that parks really allow for is the chance to take a breath and breathe. And even though I live in this, live in the city and I drive there every day, coming here to work, which is the opposite of everyone, is I come here to 
to take a breath and relax and look at this beautiful place. And I feel so fortunate and I highly recommend it to everyone. I'll tell you what, what a note to end on. Denise Radizak, Public Affairs and Interpretive Park Ranger at Biscayne National Park. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to jump on the next flight down there. I, I'll see you in four hours. Danielle, <laughs> is that okay? Can I just go <laughs> spontaneously? This sounds great. So uh, we look forward to being back and really diving in, literally and figuratively, to uh, the rest of what Biscayne National Park has to offer. Denise, thank you very much for your time. All right. We look forward to seeing you. Can't wait. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned on this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, consider clicking on support our show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like the show, write a review, give us a five-star rating, and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We'd love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting. So please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now. Bye.